Jesus in John chapter 8, in the passage we considered last, identified himself as the light of the world. And we looked at the biblical background to light. We are reminded that even in the prologue to the Gospel of John, we are told that he was the true light that came into the world. Jesus is described as light. In him was life. In him was light. The light was the life of men. And, and, and then we look at all the Old Testament backgrounds concerning light. The people who dwelled in deep darkness have seen a great light. But what does light mean? What's, what's, what's the essence of light? Light is a metaphor. Light is a reality. It's interesting that in almost every single human society, light is a metaphor for truth. It's a metaphor for knowledge. It's, it's, the difference between light and darkness is the difference between knowledge and ignorance. It's, uh, it's as if all of a sudden knowledge has appeared, just like that proverbial light bulb that appears in a cartoon over someone's head once they get it. And, and so light functions in just that way. We were reminded it was one of the, the I am statements that, that clearly claimed divinity. Only the Father, according to those who heard Jesus, could say, I am. And now comes along Jesus the second time. After he said, I am the bread of life, now he says, in Jerusalem, and that's very important, in Jerusalem, in the Feast of the Tabernacles, he says, I am the light of the world. Light and truth, keep those things very much in mind because we concluded last time at John chapter 8, verse 30. But now we're going to pick up in verse 31. And even as light was the predominant theme of the preceding passage, truth is going to be the predominant theme of now what will follow. John 8, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. We will pause there for a moment. We go right back to verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, and then you have to go back to verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, we were looking last time at the fact that it looked like it was a matter of pretty straightforward opposition to Jesus in John chapter 8. They, they didn't like what they were hearing the dynamic and conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities who were there gathered before him. They didn't like it when he said he is the light of the world. And uh, yet, yet they're puzzled, as we saw in verse 25. So they said to him, 
who are you? This is going to be very important to remember in just a few moments. When they asked the question, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. But in verse 31, we, we were told that Jesus is now talking to the Jews who had believed him. Now, it will become important for us to ponder what it meant that these Jews believed him. Believed him to what extent? Believed him in what way? And, and, and it's because the text is strange. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When we get to John chapter 15, we will see John reveal another one of the I am statements. Or Jesus will speak himself as the true vine, and uh, we as his branches. And then will come one of the most important of all the biblical commands, but it, it, it's one that gets less attention than others. Jesus describes discipleship, and he describes his church, and he describes salvation with the command that we are to abide in him abiding in Him. And, and this is an extended discourse, as we shall see in John chapter 15. Abiding in Him turns out to be the definition of discipleship. This is what it means to be Jesus' true follower. It, it is to abide in Him. And as we shall see, that abiding is a demonstration of justification by faith alone. To abide in Him is to trust Him alone. It is to be connected to Him as a, van, as a branch to the vine. It is uh, to be as naturally nourished by Him as the branches are by the vine itself. It is to be integrally tied to Him. That Jesus will say, you know, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Uh, so to be His branch is to be His forever. This is the true vine that never loses its branches. Why? Because the branches abide and because he is the true vine. So we were told in verse 30 that many believed, and now Jesus is speaking to those who do believe, but notice what he says to them. He, he, he tells them that his disciples abide. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If. So here we have a very interesting development in the Gospel of John. We have people who believe but aren't disciples. And that troubles us. It should trouble us. It should trouble us. Because this is evidence of the fact that there are people who, in some sense, believe something about Jesus. But they're not saved. They're, they're, they don't become His disciples. Well, we should have known that. Just think of the parable of the sower and the soils where we are told that amongst the soils is the shallow soil in which there are immediate signs of life, but when the noonday sun comes out and persecution arises because of the Word, they shrivel up and die. This helps us to understand a passage like Hebrews chapter 6, and we come to understand that there are those who taste, uh, taste and see, but they don't abide. Jesus here uses words that are easy for us to understand. If, as a conditional, if you abide in my word, which means his commands. 
And again, this is a part of superficial evangelicalism and the Great Commission. You know, superficial evangelicalism says that the Great Commission, and its Great Commission mentality is go into all the world and convert people. But of course, the, the Great Commission is actually go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them, well, first of all, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You know, the, the, this is where Reformation Christianity, uh, committed to the solas, and most importantly, uh, sola fide, by faith alone, we, we sometimes stop <laughs> short of being as clear as we ought about what obedience to Christ looks like upon our salvation. Once we are justified, the justified actually demonstrate themselves to be obedient followers of Jesus Christ. That will be described as abiding in Him, but even here, He uses that language. If you abide in my word, which means in His command, in His teaching, in His truth, then you are my disciples, truly. Verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Boom. Everybody at Harvard likes this verse. Um, the intellectual elites love this verse. Socrates would love this verse. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The first thing we need to notice is that Jesus isn't talking about some kind of truth as an abstraction. This is where, when Jesus will say in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the radical component of the Christian worldview that even Christians often do not recognize, and that is this. We believe that the one who was the divine logos is the divine logos, was from the beginning with God and was God. He's actually truth. He's actually truth. It's not that he possesses truth or teaches truth. He is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the Christian worldview is actually horrifyingly radical in that we do not believe there is any such reality as non-theological truth. There are truths that are accessible by common grace without special revelation, but there is no non-theological truth. Now, the secular world would be completely not only irritated but uh, infuriated by that statement. And, and by the way, an awful lot of Christians would be true truly um, aggravated by it as well. So we really believe that you cannot separate secular and sacred truth. It, it just it doesn't work because we don't believe that there's a secular realm in which truth is established by anyone other than God. And then the supernatural realm, where obviously you bring God in as the explanation and he's, he's the revealer. We actually believe that every single truth is theological. Two plus two equals four is theological. And when I when I teach this in theology, I just point out that there are people who do not know God who know that two plus two equals four. And uh, even those who argue for the relativity of truth really don't believe in the relativity of two plus two equals four. People who believe that 
the author is dead, and you can interpret a text any way you want because words and intention have indeterminate meaning. Once they achieve tenure, they believe that their contract is a document that must be read as meaning what it says and saying what it means with words and intention having full effect. No, what we're looking at here is the reality that we actually believe all truth is theological. We actually believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4 because God, the self-existent, self-revealing, glorious God, has created a universe and has embedded in the universe order. And again, we are told that this comes by the fact that Jesus was the agent of creation, and He's referred to as the Logos. So, He is the order of creation, and thus... It, it's not an accident of some kind of fluke of physics that 2 plus 2 equals 4. 2 plus 2 equals 4 because of the orderly universe that God's created in, in, in which there's even a numerical structure. That numerical structure isn't accidental. But when you have people say, well, that we have this natural truth, but over here is supernatural truth, we can't make that distinction. I was reading just this week a, a new biography of Theodore Hesburgh, who was uh, kind of the iconic president of the University of Notre Dame during crucial years, the second half of the 20th century. Fascinating figure. Um, Notre Dame, when he became president, was basically a sleepy little Catholic men's college with a football team. It was not a research university. It was not in the top-ranked universities in the United States. Hesburgh, who was himself a priest, the Order of the Holy Cross, and which controlled the university, he had this vision of it becoming a great American university. Well, what interests me mostly in the story is the fact that, predictably, in order for the school in a secular age to emerge as recognized as one of the elite United States universities, it had to become less Catholic. And Catholic controls largely uh, minimized. The, uh, the, the control of the church went from the order that had, of the university went from the order that had established it to a secular board of trustees, and you, you can follow the whole story. But the interesting thing was the argument that Hesburgh made, because Hesburgh made the, the argument that when it comes to the natural knowledges, uh, Notre Dame was going to have to be in the same conversation as all the secular universities, all the prestigious universities. So biology, physics, uh, what, what he, he called the natural, the areas of natural knowledge. But then he said, that uh, Notre Dame would add to that a unique contribution of supernatural knowledge. The interesting thing about the book that I was reading is that it, it demonstrates the failure of that approach, and it's written by a Catholic who, who was writing this book. He says, you know, ultimately that has to be judged a failure, uh, because the supposedly secular truths are now under control of a secular worldview in the dominant academy. And, uh, and, and pretty soon, that's everything other than the Department of Theology. And so, before long, the secular academy is setting the rules for the entire university, and all they actually did was kind of, you know, separate out this Department of Theology and what's now this massive university, and that's where the supernatural truths are. But, and all the rules for, uh, you know, how these disciplines are taught, 
they're all completely secular. Well, I mean, but that's the problem. That's the problem. And, and this, this, this book, pointing to Hesburgh and pointing to Notre Dame, points to the problem. This is the problem of evangelical academia. If you think you can divide the, the disciplines between the secular or, or the natural and the supernatural, it, it, it doesn't work. The verse we just read here in verse 32 is the theme verse of theological liberalism and its emancipation project. And that emancipation project is we're going to follow the truth wherever it leads us. Oh, it sounds so noble. Uh, you, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is the great emancipation declaration of, uh, of, of you know, what we might call the secular mind or the mind that wants to be secular or wants to act secular or wants secular support. This, so you go back to the ancients and you, you look at a Socrates, and uh, Socrates would certainly have agreed with this. He was, he was about the, the pursuit of truth, and, uh, and so much so that... Uh, that Socrates was basically subversive of the classical Greek order in Athens. He was asking questions you don't ask. That's how he got the reputation of the Socratic method. You know, how do you know what's good? How do you know what's right? How do you know who is good? You know, how do you know what's beautiful? The Socratic method was asking subversive questions, trying to get to the essence of the thing. And of course, he was eventually condemned to death for corrupting the youth of Athens by, uh, by raising suspicions. Maybe we really don't know what the truth is. Maybe we really can't know the truth. Maybe we don't know what's beautiful. Maybe we don't know what's good. Um, and Socrates thus becomes kind of a Western cultural trope or a model for this, uh, this brave, autonomous, secular a quest for truth. Fast forward through human history, and you, you come to the Enlightenment. And, and the Enlightenment was many things. It, uh, it was a recovery along with the Renaissance. It was a recovery of classical knowledge, which is very interesting because uh, actually people forget that a part of what made the Middle Ages the Middle Ages were that they were Latin ages, Latin ages. And uh, Latin was the lingua franca, language, uh, the language of academia and of theology. Greek had largely fallen into ignorance. And, uh, and so a part of what happened in the Renaissance was the recovery of Greek texts and the ability to read them. And of course, that was rather subversive because then that brings in the ancient Greeks like Socrates and Plato. It opens, opens all kinds of, uh, of issues. The, the Latin texts were overwhelmingly Christian texts, but now you're bringing in Greek texts. Of course, there's the Greek New Testament, but there's a lot of stuff in Greek. And, and it, the whole classical learning began to, uh, to emerge, and the, that's why in the Renaissance you see the recovery of these classical forms and you, the, 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 a renaissance of, uh, of and that's, what, that's why the Renaissance, or as the British would say, the Renaissance, that's why uh, it was considered such a flowering. Uh, those kinds of questions are being asked again. The Enlightenment was the rise of a secular autonomous reason, not, not a Christian reason under the authority of the church. Now, now, you can understand why that was styled as liberation. This is, we're going to liberate the quest for truth from the totalitarian control of priests. The church, there's, there's no accident that if you look at the medieval world, you, you look at the one 
architectural achievement of the medieval world that everyone knows are the cathedrals. And so just about every, wherever there was a bishop, there was a cathedral. Cathedrals didn't have to be big, though most of them were. But the cathedral was this massive statement, here is the repository of truth. The universities largely started out of the chapter houses, you know, related, to, they, they, they had grown largely out of the cathedral schools. And so, and, and most of the professors were priests. It was, a, it was a priestly, ecclesial university model. But that meant that the church controlled what was taught. And, and not just the church through its official structures, but the church by its cultural dominance. Just as the cathedral dominated the landscape, the church, that meant the Catholic church, it, uh, it dominated the uh, intellectual control structure. So in the Enlightenment, the philosophers, they called it the Enlightenment, and here we are back again. Light, Enlightenment, light turned on. Uh, this, this is, by the way, the slander against the Middle Ages. I did not say the Dark Ages. I said the Middle Ages. Uh, the Enlightenment slander against the, the Middle Ages was that they were dark ages. Well, were they dark? Yeah, they were dark in some sense. For most people, they were dark. It wasn't widespread education. But it, they weren't dark as in people knew nothing. By the way, this is just a little footnote, but my favorite descriptor of dark the Dark Ages, which, again, I'm not going to concede the modern conceit that they really were the Dark Ages. They're the Middle Ages, the medieval synthesis between faith and reason. But, uh, but modern, the, the modern Enlightenment mind wanted to cast it as the Dark Ages. But one of the reasons they were dark, according to uh, the mentality, is because they were dark, very dark. In this sense, Europe was so forested and uh, that, that there were very few open spaces. William Manchester, in his, uh, his work on the Middle Ages, entitled A World Lit Only by Fire. I love cultural history, so all, the, all this blends together. I'm, if I not stop, we're going to be too far off on a tangent. But William Manchester said, to understand how forested Europe was, understand that a squirrel could climb up a tree in Moscow and down a tree in Paris. And I love that. This is a beautiful way of coming up with it. It's this massive forest the whole way. And by the way, little other little footnote cultural history here, that's the reason why the forest becomes such a symbol in European civilization of anarchy and, uh, and darkness. This is why. The, uh, the fairy tales told the children, told them, stay out of the woods. There are witches there that will cook you. There are, there are wolves there that will eat you. And, and, and I love the way uh, Heisinger, the, 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 the historian, says, the reason why children were warned that there were wolves there would eat them because there were wolves there that would eat them. These were, not, these were not like little bedtime stories. These were, don't do this or you may die. Don't go in there. And of course, it's also where the bandits went. And uh, so by the time you get to Robin Hood, everybody knows they're, 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 in, the, they're in, the, in the forest because you can disappear in the forest. The Enlightenment philosopher said what we're doing is we're just bringing light, but it's an autonomous reason. It's, it's, it's not a Christian reason based upon the authority of God as revealed in His Word, it was an autonomous reason. And so, 
If you look at the rise of the modern secular university, especially from the last half of the 19th century, it was the university declaring its emancipation and the intellectual elites declaring their emancipation from the intellectual uh, binding and authority of the church. So you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Harvard would love to adopt that as a motto. Um, it, it just makes perfect sense. Yes, truth liberates. The truth will set you free. But what we need to note is how catastrophic a misreading of this text is in John chapter 8. This is not about autonomous human reason liberating humanity by intellect and, and illumination. It's, it's Christ who's the truth. He's talking about being His disciple. And when, when He refers to the liberation of truth, it's the truth, He, who will set you free. It all begins with, if you abide in me. And, and by the way, if, if we begin any sentence that way, things get happy. And, and, and so we could, we could say that, uh, you know, go to Yale or Princeton or University of Chicago. Yes, here's, here's, our, here's our absolute confidence. If you abide in Christ, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But we actually can't say that without the if you abide in Christ. And, and remember, he, didn't, he says, abide in my word. So, by the way, it's not just that you like Jesus. It's not just that you think he's a fascinating character. You've got to be his disciple and obey his word. And if you do, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Otherwise, otherwise you don't. And, and this is one of the radical presuppositions of how we as Christians have to look at the modern intellectual project. We have to understand two things about the modern intellectual project. Number one, it's based in this claim of autonomous reason, and that doesn't mean that they can't know anything. It doesn't. Uh, they can split the atom. They can know all kinds of things. They can, they can identify germs. They can, uh, they can come up with, you know, the special and general uh, models and theories of relativity. They can, they can do all kinds of things. Just uh, 50 years ago, this week, Apollo 10 uh, came within 47,000 feet of landing on the moon. And you look at 50 years ago, we kind of take that for granted, but I mean, just 50 years ago, we had a view of the moon we never had before and uh, so it's, it's amazing that what, what human beings are capable of doing. And, and of course, in literature and philosophy, there, there's some remarkable achievements. But the problem from a Christian perspective is that they can know the part, but they can't know the whole. And, and, and that leads to the second, second Christian understanding of the modern intellectual project, and that is that autonomous reason becomes idolatrous. Um, because if you think that autonomous human reason is the organ of perception and reflection and truth, then you're really worshiping reason. And, and here again, in our theology, number one, they're only thinking creatures because God made them in His image, us, all of them. The only reason we are cogitating creatures is because God made us. And by common grace, He has given to all humanity 
the ability to apprehend the world and to unlock many of its truths. So, you know, this is why uh, we're not surprised when a Hindu agrees that two plus two equals four. We're not, uh, we're not amazed when an Eskimo says two plus two equals four. This is, this is the order of the universe. It's common grace. It's natural revelation. We also believe theologically that where the question becomes most important, given our sinfulness, general revelation fails. Natural revelation fails. And, and again, it's really not the failure of the revelation, it's our sinfulness. Uh, so what, what we miss is the big truth. The, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That takes special revelation. So here's where we understand in the modern intellectual project, if you deny special revelation, and by the way, you don't even see general revelation as revelation in any sense, you just see it as stuff, then you're going to mess up the biggest questions. And uh, that's exactly where we are, messing up the biggest questions. You know, the, the, uh, the dominant cosmological model of the universe reflects and accepts no design, no designer, no meaning. It's just stuff, and eventually we're just stuff. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I was reading a philosopher some years ago who said, secular philosopher, citing this text, he said, Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But I say unto you, you will know the truth, and from now on you will lose sleep. Not the most encouraging philosopher. Uh, this is kind of the uh, Nietzschean line of philosophy where if indeed we are left with autonomous reason and all we have is human wisdom to live on, pretty soon you're going to figure out there's no ultimate meaning to life that human wisdom can secure. Jesus here begins by talking about what it means to believe in him and to be his disciple, and that's what changes everything. And, and thus, John 8.32 isn't the theme verse of modern intellectual independence. It's actually really important to the very essence of Christianity because what it means to be Jesus' disciple truly is to obey him and to follow him and to abide in him. We're, we're going to have to have seven more chapters before we have Jesus' full explanation of what it means to abide in him. But he said this already, right here in John chapter 8. And he said it to the Jews who had believed him. Notice the, the way that's put, by the way, in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, and, and that always raises a question we really don't want to ask, and that is, what did they believe? How much, how little? Well, you begin to find out when you see their answer in verse 33. They answered him. Because remember, he said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Okay, hold on just a minute. Seriously? We are the children of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone? The whole central story of Israel is being rescued out of bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. 
And it's not just the Egyptians, it's the Assyrians and it's the Babylonians. So what do they mean? Well, I think they're actually clearly speaking about revelation. They've never been captive to anyone else's truth claims. They have, uh, they, they're talking about the fact that Israel's existence is, is based upon the fact they haven't been enslaved to anyone else's revelation. They've had the direct revelation of God, and it's covenant revelation. They mentioned Abraham. We, 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 because remember that the preceding words Jesus said were about truth. Well, we haven't been enslaved in the question of truth. We haven't been enslaved to anyone. We, we have Torah. God spoke to us. God revealed His law to Moses. God spoke to, to Abraham the words of covenant promise. How can you insult us? You say, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Don't, don't talk to us about truth setting us free. We are Abraham's children. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus, just, whatever you have to say, you, you have to conclude he does not follow a seeker-sensitive mode of ministry. He's not trying to sneak up on people till they realize on their 35th Sunday in their 21st year of attending church, wait a minute, he just told me I'm lost. Oh, he just, he just amplifies it, speaking to them in the context of this controversy in the Feast of the Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is a radical statement. So this is so insulting. It's, it's so insulting to the Jews, it's almost impossible for us to recognize it. He's just told them, yeah, 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 you think slavery's in the past, you're slaves right now. Oh, my goodness. I mean, this is, uh, this is horrifying. If you could come up with any word calculated to offend the crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, remind them that they were once slaves, and, and, and then tell them that insofar as they sin, they are slaves to sin right now. Some liberation project, Israel. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Wow. I mean, just let Jesus' words mean what they say and say what they mean. Jesus says, by the way, you guys are slaves to sin, and, and it's, it's not just that. You're really not in God's house. Uh, Feast of the Tabernacles, remember, in Jerusalem, Jesus told them, you look like you're insiders, but you're actually outsiders. Why? Because you're slaves, and slaves don't remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. This, this points, by the way, to the fact that if you were to look at the logic of a passage like this and come to understand the Gospel of John in this light, we, we come to understand why it is so necessary, necessary 
that our salvation be rightly described scripturally as adoption. Uh, that th this points to what Paul will flesh out more in, in, in what it means to be adopted. And because only as sons and daughters do we get to live in the house forever. The slaves work in the house until they're done and they're, they're gone. But the, the sons and daughters live forever in the house with the Father, only by Christ. So in verse 36, he says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And the Son, so he's referring to himself as the Son. He's clearly claiming to be God's Son. He accuses them because they are the offspring of Abraham, yet hate him of, uh, of being outside the house. I speak of what I've seen with my father. You do what you heard from your father. Well, who are their fa who's their father? Abraham? No, the entire passage that follows, Jesus is saying to them, Abraham's not really you fa your father. If Abraham were your father, then you would act like Abraham. But you're not acting like Abraham. You're acting like unbelievers. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And, and by the way, Jesus just said in verse 37, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. So this shows you the limitations of their theological imagination. We're the offspring of Abraham. That didn't work, so we're the sons of Abraham. Maybe they said it louder. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Oh, this is so important, so important. If, you're, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Now, Jesus is accusing them of being the children of Satan. Not of Abraham. They think they're Abraham's children. Jesus says, no, you're actually Satan's children because you are not doing what Abraham did. But notice the language. Here again, it's so powerful. Don't race past it. He said, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now, was Abraham saved by his works? Well, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul made very clear as he's laying out what it means to be justified by faith alone, that Abraham is the first exemplar of what it means to be justified by faith alone. One of Paul's central arguments is justification by faith alone did not come as a new doctrine in the new covenant. It was actually the only way of salvation even in the Old Covenant, and Abraham is the first example. He believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, justification by faith alone. And, and as you'll notice here, but Abraham obeyed. He, he obeyed. And, and that's exactly what Jesus was just saying to them, to those who believed in him. If you are my disciples, you will abide in me. So when he talks about the works of Abraham, the main thing he's talking about is Abraham's faith. Everything else follows. The, Abraham demonstrated the one thing they refused to demonstrate. You are doing the works of, that your father did. 
They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Is this an aspersion upon Jesus' conception and the nature of his birth and patrilineage? Maybe. Maybe. The reason why it might not be certain is because this isn't Nazareth and this isn't Galilee or Bethlehem. This is Jerusalem and the Feast of the Tabernacle. So it may be, uh, it may be quite different. But certainly that's in the background. Jesus has accused them of being illegitimate children of Abraham. They claim to be the children of God the Father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, verse 42, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. So Jesus says, you think you love God, but when God sends his son, you don't recognize him. So you don't know the Father. If you knew the Father, you would know the Son. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, they want to kill him. How much can they not bear to hear his word? Well, we're going to wait to the very end, and, and you'll see very end of this passage. They want to kill him. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I told the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever's of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This next passage flows so quickly, I don't want to delay it, but rather for us to see it here. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, so this, is, this, is, this is slightly hilarious, as heresy is often slightly hilarious. Uh, this, when, when you find out some of the weirdo things people believe, and uh, I, I have this experience every once in a while, especially when I'm with someone, say, I don't know, sitting next to them on an airplane, and you're just trying to tease out what they believe, and you just get the weirdest stuff imaginable. This, uh, this week on the briefing, I, uh, I talked about the death of Doris Day, the actress, and uh, you know, no funeral, no uh, cemetery monument, no memorial service, nothing. She, did, she didn't want to talk about death, want to have anything to do with death. And most people just went over that. But um, I thought, well, there's actually a big theological story here. In one of her marriages, she converted to Christian science. And there's a Christian science giant monumental building, you know, right over on the road. It, you know, has to be the craziest belief system you could invent, uh, except for the crazier ones. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, just, it's just lately. I mean, you have Mary Baker Eddy, who decides that thought is the only reality, and the material world doesn't really exist, and, uh, and you know, right down to the fact that illness and, and death don't exist. Uh, de illness is just bad thoughts, you know, uh, preying on you, and death is just, it appears to be death. She spoke of herself, said, when I appear to be dead, 
It's just transitioning to a higher. I mean, you just look at this, and you know, this is ridiculous. You know, you had a headache, take an aspirin. Um, you know, it's, it's just the, it's just ridiculous. And uh, and but look, look, it builds big buildings. You know, this is crazy stuff. Well, remember that earlier they had said, "Who are you?" This is chap- chapter eight, verse twenty-five. So they said to him, "Who are you?" And then then this ludicrous thing. You know, this again, heresy is just hilarious. The Jews answered him, "Are we not right in saying?" What are they going to say? A Samaritan and have a demon. They're speaking to Jesus in the precincts of the temple, in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's been talking to them about the fact that he came from the Father and, and is speaking with the Father's authority. And, and we already told that some believed in him, and he's talking to them about the fact that, that they are not as they, as they had claimed Abraham's children because they're not following in Abraham's way of faith. And so they just say, is it not true? Is it not true? Are, are we not right? What a stupid way to ask the question. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, so I'm not good for athletic metaphors, but this is the stupidest Hail Mary pass uh, imaginable because there's no one there. It's, uh, it, it's incredible. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? By the way, be careful what questions you ask. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, I, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Yet you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I made Abraham, you morons. And when Abraham saw me, he knew me. Abraham knew me. If you were Abraham's children, you would know me. Now, notice also as we conclude, Jesus speaks to them, and he doesn't use the formula, I am, followed by a metaphorical picture for us. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, as we shall see others. In this case, the thunderclap from heaven comes in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In one sense, understanding the Gospel of John in the New Testament, this is the shortest, clearest claim by Christ in his earthly ministry of the fact that he is God, the Son of the Father. 
the unadorned I am, the very same name that came out of the burning bush to Moses. Then the last verse, so, it, be, it, it began in verse 31, the passage we're looking at, so, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, now another so. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Greek there in, the, in verse uh, 59 basically means that uh, they sought to kill Jesus, to stone him. They picked up stones to stone him, but when they looked up, he was gone. Why? Because as Jesus said, even as he was speaking of going to the feast of the tabernacles, my hour has not yet come. And so we're in John 8. Next together we'll turn to John 9, but... Uh, John 8 is one of the most neglected chapters out of the Gospel of John. It's one of my favorites. There's so much here. Without John 8, you can't explain the dynamic of what follows. But just, to, just remember that what we just heard was Jesus in more way than one make very clear He is the very Son of God. Before Abraham was, I am. Father, we are just so thankful for the clarity of your revelation. Thank you that you put it there for us in intelligible form because you love us enough to reveal to us the truth. Father, this is your word. Because of that, that fact, it is powerful beyond our imagination. May it be powerful in us in just this way we pray to your glory. Amen. Amen. God bless you.